The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. 653. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. We having a good weekend so far. Um, we're going to talk about the London terrorist attack before. Or as MSNBC called it, a van attack. Remember, the, so last time they called it the Manchester explosion as if like an air conditioning unit just combusted spontaneously. And, and now this is a, a van attack as if the van decided to run people over and slit their throats all on their own, all on its own. Uh, so we'll chat about that. Uh, Comey, of course, but that whole fake controversy distracted people from a little Ben, Con- ben Carson controversy, which I think is important to talk about. We'll do that. Also, Wednesday was the 73rd anniversary of D-Day. So I got a couple stories related to D-Day that I want to share as well, including uh, the story of the man who FDR said won us the war. That's I mean that's pretty it's pretty high praise. So I'll tell you his story in a little bit. But I want to start here, and uh, I want to get this one clip out of the way because it is a clip of Hillary. So I'm actually legitimately amazed that Hillary is still doing anything at all I, I imagine she has plenty of money um and and i'm really not trying to be mean i thought she would pull a joe paterno and once the one thing that she always wanted was taken from her i thought she would pass away and i, I don't mean that in a mean way i really don't like it happened to roger Ailes a couple weeks ago right i thought she would just due to a, not a broken heart but broken ambition just check out but not only did that not happen, she's out giving speeches and people still go to them for some reason. I don't quite. Uh, here, anyway, here she is uh, just a couple days ago. 15, 20. This is a time for us to reach out to the world, to understand more about what is happening, not just in our own country, but indeed across the globe. It's a time for steady, determined leadership like we are seeing from local authorities in London, including the mayor of London. And it is a time to remember how important our alliances are. You heard from Victor. You heard from Maya. You heard from the congressman. Getting to know one another, learning about the experiences, the lives, the cultures, the religions, the food, 
putting yourself in another's shoes, walking in them. It's even more important that we work together with our allies right, and our friends it. and so our partners. So it's some real uh, deep yes, insight there, Yes, to keep Hillary. us safe. We can stop. I can't take any more. I've hit the limit. I've hit the limit of Hillary talking. That's all I just, we got to what we needed. <laughs> we don't need a word more. It's all we can, it's all we can handle. Um, so did you hear that? We need to understand the Middle East and people in the Middle East and their culture and their religion and their food. The food that Muslims eat. I, I didn't notice it the first four times I heard that clip, but people in the audience laugh when, when she says food. But once we understand what terrorists eat, then the hate will go away. Or something. Now, now, let me be fair here. I agree with her to a point. I think it was just two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we were talking about cultural appropriation and how this is a very dangerous concept. Cultural appropriation says that I, a white guy, can't eat a taco. And I'm actually not kidding. I can't eat a taco. Uh, I can't play uh, Mexican or any, any other music from any other culture. I can't eat food from any other culture. I can't celebrate any other holidays. I can't speak the language of any other culture other than my own. And if I do, then I'm appropriating their culture and I am a white oppressor and such nonsense. Now, this is a dangerous thing, a principle, a set of principles, there's nothing principled about it. This is a dangerous philosophy coming from our universities because it is the sharing of cultures or at the very least the understanding, but really the sharing and engaging in each other's cultures that makes us realize for the most part, and I'll get to that in a second, that we are not that different. And that is what prevents violence and, and war. That is 100% true. But here's the rub. This is only true in cultures that are compatible with each other. Or in our case, this is only true with cultures that are compatible to Western society. This, you know, we're really not that different mentality is true among different aspects of Western cultures. I should say uh, it's true among different peoples who are raised in Western cultures and Western values are not universal. We think they are because that's probably, it's, it's all I've ever grown up with. I'd have only lived in this country. So it's easy to assume, well, this is how everyone lives, right? Everyone, like I have my principles that I grew up with living in America. So, I mean, every, everyone's got to have the same. No, they're not universal by a long shot. The mayor of London, who Hillary mentioned there, uh, he is Muslim. He said, your perverse ideology, speaking to terrorists, your perverse ideology has nothing to do with the true values of Islam. And he says, the people of London stand in defiance of an attack on our values and our way of life. That's great, but not all Muslims in Britain have the same values and way of life. They don't. Not this, this, you can think they do, but they don't. And they certainly don't have the same values and way of life as the little girls who were killed at that concert in Manchester a week or so ago. Some do. Some British Muslims do, absolutely, but not all. Now, we don't need to go crazy here because we can do numbers all day long, but we'll just stay in England. 50% of British Muslims, 50% think being gay should be illegal. 
That is such a far cry from maybe a Christian who thinks that it's wrong or a sin to illegal. Those are very, very different things. And these are British Muslims. These aren't people in Saudi Arabia. These are British, 50% of British Muslims. That's not a Western value. I could do a bunch of these, but let me just share this one. 78% of British Muslims, 78%, almost all, said they would like to integrate into British life on most things apart from Islamic schooling and some laws. Oh. Some laws. Like what? What laws? So so let's just take one of these one of these British Muslims who said, "Oh, you know, I want to integrate into British life." Except for some laws. Like what? Uh, Jaywalking? You don't want to integrate into that law? Is that the law you don't want to integrate into? Hmm. I have a feeling they're not talking about jaywalking. What kind of laws? What kind of laws do you not want to integrate into? Probably the whole you can't throw gay people off buildings law, right? Or not allowed to stone women. The genital mutilation laws we have here. What laws are you talking about? Because all of these laws that we have, at least in England's case or here in America, these are not just, or I should should say the laws that you have in Middle Eastern countries, they're not just different from Western culture. They are in direct contradiction to it. They are incompatible. This is not the difference between baklava and pecan pie. This is the difference between killing gay people or not killing gay people. Incompatible. Now, there's very different cultures, right? Japanese culture and Western culture are very different. Or listed Japanese and American. They're different. But there's enough commonalities that they're not incompatible with each other. But Islamic culture, based on Sharia law and Western culture, are. They are incompatible. Or I'll put it like this. You can't live both to the fullest. How about that? You can't live Sharia law and Western law at the same time. Impossible. Now, I want to make one last point here, and then I want to come back with a debate that was had in 2007 by Intelligence Squared. They hosted a debate. Uh, about the superiority of Western values. And they had three people who said, yes, Western values are superior. And they had three people who said Western values are not. And I want to talk about that coming up in the next segment. It's really interesting. But I'll wrap up here. I think it was last week. We talked about how ISIS grows in a vacuum, in a political vacuum. This is why ISIS is in Libya and Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Somalia and places like that. These are failed states. They have no governments, right? So their power vacuums is a void and evil ISIS infiltrates these vacuums in order to gain power. That's true uh, physically and politically. We get that. That makes perfect sense. But it's also true culturally. I believe Western values or Western countries have a cultural vacuum. And you have Western leaders, thought leaders, culture leaders, who demean intellectual leaders who demean and and cut off our values at our knees and try to destroy Western history 
and destroy, d- 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 describe Western culture as oppressive and evil and something that we should be ashamed of. And when they do that, after decades, we create, they create a cultural vacuum. And evil will fill it. Just like politically they have filled it in Libya and Syria and Yemen. Culture matters. And this is why understanding our culture. And and I may be arrested by the PC police for for what I'm going to say next. But understanding our culture. And why it is superior. Knowing that and understanding that and being able to articulate that is essential. And that's what we're going to do next. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusader. How are you? All right. Let's continue this thought here. So let's talk about Western values. There was a debate a decade ago hosted by Intelligence Squared, 2007. And the question was, we should not be reluctant to assert the superiority of Western values. And there were three people on each side of the argument. One man grew up in an Islamic culture is now uh, pro-Western values. I have the opening of his speech here and I think it's important to know this. We need to be able to articulate ourselves as Americans, as patriots, as conservatives. We need to be able to articulate this properly. Otherwise, we will create a vacuum and it will be filled by something else. All right. So again, this is someone who grew up in the Middle East and now uh, pro-Western values. He says, the great idea of the West, excuse me, the great ideas of the West, rationalism, self-criticism, the disinterested search for truth, the separation of church and state, the rule of law, equality before the law, freedom of conscience and expression, human rights, liberal democracy, together, constitute quite an achievement for any civilization this set of principles remains the best and perhaps the only means for all people no matter what race or creed to live in freedom and reach their full potential and when western values have been adopted by other societies such as japan or south korea their citizens have reaped benefits now i know i ran through those quickly and truly each one of those deserves a full study and analysis like i said uh we have to be able to well First Peter three says, always be prepared 
to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now that's about Christian faith, right? You got to be able to defend your faith at any moment. Same thing. Always be prepared. But for the sake of this conversation, we're going to take those as self-evident truths. Over time, we'll go over each of them. But I want to be able to compare that to what Islamic values are. Because again, if you grew up in Western value, Western culture, you don't like, well, everyone, everyone's like this. But it's stunning. I'll talk with people who have spent years in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they tell me the differences. And it's, you're like, wait, what, huh? I don't even, really? People think that way? I don't even, just time. We've talked about this before. People in Afghanistan have no concept of time. Almost everyone's birthday is January 1st. There's no, there's no, there's no, it doesn't matter. Like they, they think in terms of decades or even hundreds of years, right? It's very different than, than us. So I, I was, you know, my son was born at 2.38 a.m. right on, on this date. Other countries just don't think like, that. I mean, that's just a, one example, but it's example of like, oh geez, I didn't even, how can, how can people not have a concept of time? I don't. Okay, so here are some Islamic values. In many countries, especially Islamic ones, you are not free to read what you want. Under Sharia or Islamic law, women are not free to marry whom they wish. Sharia, derived from the Quran, prescribes barbaric punishments, such as stoning to death for adultery. It calls for homosexuals and apostates to be executed. In Saudi Arabia, among other countries, Muslims are not free to convert to Christianity. And Christians are not free to practice their faith. The Quran is not a rights-respecting document. Under Islam, life is a closed book. Everything has been decided for you. The dictates of Sharia and the whims of Allah set strict limits on the possible agenda for your life. But in the West, we have the choice to pursue our desires and ambitions. We are free as individuals to set the goals and determine the contents of our own lives. And we decide what meaning to give to our lives. As Roger Scruton remarks, the glory of the West is that life is an open book. And he goes on to describe cultural achievements of the West, you know, symphonies, art, all the rest. He says the West gave us the Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and many other manifestations of the humanitarian impulse. It is the West that provides the bulk of the aid to beleaguered Darfur, while Islamic countries are conspicuous by their absence. One last, one last paragraph. The West does not need lectures on the superior virtue of societies where women are kept in subjugation, endure genital mutilation, and are married off against their will at the age of nine, have acid thrown in their faces, or are stoned to death for alleged adultery. The West does not need sanctimonious homilies from societies that can't provide clean drinking water or sewage systems for their populations, that cannot educate their citizens, leave 40 to 50% of them illiterate, that make no provisions for the handicapped, that have no sense of the common good or civic responsibility, and that are riddled with corruption. I love that. We don't need your sanctimonious homilies. He says the rest of the world recognizes the virtues of the West in concrete ways. When Chinese students cried and died for democracy in Tiananmen Square, they brought with them not representations of Confucius or Buddha, but a model of the Statue of Liberty. Millions of people risked their lives trying to get to the West, not to Saudi Arabia or Iran 
or Pakistan. They flee from theocratic or other totalitarian regimes to find tolerance and freedom in the West where life is an open book. Got to take a break here. There's one more clip I want to play. We'll do it in the next segment from, from one of the people debating that Western culture is superior and, and it's okay to say that. Think about this. If you're a college professor, you, you've many have decided to really dedicate their lives to tell kids how oppressive the West is, how oppressive we are to, to gay people and women and black people and Japanese people and Hispanics and everyone. We're evil and oppressive. And when you do that, you start to lose all sense of perspective, right? For instance, you say Trump is, you know, Hitler when it comes to gay rights. And you're like, what are you talking about? Trump is probably the most gay rights president we've ever had. Barack Obama, when he went into office, was not pro-gay marriage and all the rest. But when you've lost the ability to have any perspective, then you've also lost the ability to condemn people and cultures that throw gay people off buildings. This is what happens when you lose it. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. All right, one last clip I want to play here, play, play here, and then we'll move on to uh, something completely different here. So this is again from that debate ten years ago. Uh, this is David Aronovich. Uh, little, so he's on the pro West side that Western values are superior. Um, keep in mind, 2007. So Abu Ghraib just happened. This was the the prison in Iraq and, and American service members abused prisoners and the pictures came out and stuff like that. That was Abu Ghraib. Um, so this is just after that. 1525. But of course, when kind of considering how this debate was likely to go, I did think that however wonderful they were, the first thing we'd attempt to do would be to throw a kind of fog of obscurantism over the course of this debate. Because actually, we know what this discussion is really about. It's not about whether or not we think Western people are superior to Eastern people. Uh, It's not about race. It's not about literature. It is about cultural relativism. That's what this discussion is essentially about. Western values, as we understand them, not just practiced in the West, practiced in a large number of places, but usually called Western values, are precisely the ones that Ibn Warak laid out. And we know what they are. They are liberal democracy. They are a culture of human rights. They are, and this is very important, freedom of expression. Uh, They are freedom of worship. And they are secular government, secular government, as a consequence of those previous things. They are freedoms to, and they are freedoms from. The fact that the West may often fall short 
of its own ideals, of its own values, if you like, is testified in the very fact that something like Abu Ghraib, which was mentioned there by Charles, is regarded by us as a blot on our name rather than as a matter of good policy by the government that implemented it, as it would have been by the government of Saddam Hussein, who had Abu Ghraib before the Americans got there. So good. So good. Right. So all the people keep that argument in your back in the back pocket. People who speak out against Western values, the values and, and culture, they'll point out different black eyes in our history and they'll use those moments as evidence that we are bad people. Now, I like how uh, Aronovich started off by saying, no, there's very different between bad people and bad cultures. Right. That's important, too. But, but it, people in, in uh, academia will, will mix these two and say, we, we have a bad culture. Therefore, we are bad people. Uh, and they'll point to different moments in our culture, in our history to prove how bad we are. But the thing is the very fact that those are black eyes, the very fact that those are moments that we regret or look back on and say, that proves that we are not a bad society because there are other cultures around the world that would view those as golden moments of achievement like Saddam Hussein would have with Abu Ghraib. He looks at that and says, job well done. We look at that and go, oh no, right? That's not, so that's proof that we are good because we have an ideal that we try to achieve when so many other dictators and people around the world don't. This makes Western values, Western culture superior than all the others. All right, let's change topics. Talk about some values, a principle that that we have here, um, and that lead to to prosperity. I uh, I want to share this story here. It might be helpful. I have no idea how many people are listening now. Maybe this will be helpful to three people. In the right, like right now, it'll be helpful to three people. I mean, ultimately, at one point, it will be relevant to all of us at some point in our lives, but. Uh, to about three people right now, this will speak to you. And, and I think that's enough to make this worth it. I want to talk about the power of desperation. I may have a better title for this, but we'll see where this goes. So we've shared before, maybe a month or so ago, we shared the story of Cortez and how he went from Cuba to Latin America. And he wanted to convince his men to attack, you know, the Aztecs and, and tribes in Mexico but most of the men just kind of wanted to go back to Cuba, <laughs> be done with it, just go back to their families and take the money they got and just be done. So he had all the boats sunk so that the men had no way to retreat and would join him in attacking the tribes. Uh, Caesar did the same thing. If, if he was leading an army to a foreign land over water, he would land, get everything off the boats, and then sink the ships. There was no retreating. It was win or die. That's it. There was no other option. No running away. Happened in Eastern countries too. Sun Tzu in Art of War. He said, if you're going to battle with great warriors, like if, like if you're a commander and you have a great group of men underneath you, always fight in a place that gives you the opportunity to retreat if necessary. But if you're going to battle with not great warriors, just regular people, 
than start the battle in a place where their backs are against the wall. Because then retreat won't be an option. They'll have to fight. And they'll fight stronger because the only other option would be death. Isn't that interesting? You'd think it'd be, I don't know, the other way around, if anything. You'd think, you'd think he'd say, listen, if you're fighting with people who aren't that great, make sure there's a way to retreat because you're probably going to need it. Nope. He says, if you're going to fight with people who are probably going to retreat, make it not an option. I bet we got a lot of people from Texas listening, so you probably heard this story before. I've never heard this part of the story. You know, we've all heard the story of the Alamo, right? But I've never heard about the bridge. So Sam Houston had 800 volunteers underneath him who were not happy. They were on verge of a full-on revolt. But they came face-to-face with the enemy. There were twice as many, right? So there were 800 Texans and then twice as many enemy. Houston heard that reinforcements were coming to the, to the bat, to the enemy. So he's like, geez, we're outnumbered now. And then we got more people coming. So Houston sent one of his men to cut the bridge where the enemy reinforcements were coming from. This guy's name was Erastus Smith, but his nickname was deaf. There's actually a County in Texas named after him. Deaf Smith County. Uh, he was partially deaf. So uh, Houston tells him, go, Cut down the bridge. So they're about to start fighting and Houston's trying to hold it off until Def Smith gets back and tells him if he was successful, right? Blocking the reinforcements. So Def Smith comes back and he yells to all the men. He goes, fight for your lives. Vince's bridge has been cut down. Now, he meant let's go, let's win the enemy's bridge has been cut down. The reinforcements aren't coming. That's what he meant. But the 800 Texans interpreted that as, "Uh uh-oh, we now have no way to retreat. They thought that was the bridge they were going to use to retreat. And that's when Sam Houston said, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo, and they went in and they fought, and the battle lasted less than half an hour. Only six Texans were killed. It was a dramatic victory. Why? Why did they win? Because their backs were against the wall. They had no option. Thinking that their bridge to retreat on was cut down gave them the desperation and the singleness of purpose that they needed to win. Coming up in the, I think the last hour of the show, I want to talk about D-Day. Wednesday was the 73rd anniversary of D-Day. And I want to tell the story of Point to Hawk and the Army Rangers who were able to climb this 100-foot tall cliff with the Nazis on top of the cliff shooting machine guns down on them. Holy cow, how was is, how is that possible? Because there was no option. You either climb the cliff and get to the top or you die. There was, no, there was zero way to retreat. It was impossible to retreat. Could not happen. It was climb or die. And they did it. Amazing. Here's the real story I want to share, though. That's all just background, just to prove that this has been true for all time and, and in many different cultures. Here's what I really wanted to share. Brett McKay wrote about this. Um, I've never, there's a movie called Gattaca. I've never, I've never seen it. Maybe you have, and you remember the scene, but it's set in the future. And in the future, there are two races of people. You have the valids and the invalids. So the valids are genetically superior in every way. Now there's two brothers and one is a valid and one's an invalid, the younger brother. And they have this contest between the two of them to see who can swim the farthest out before they turn back. So it's a game of chicken, 
All right, we'll see who can who can swim the furthest. First one to turn back loses. Now the valid brother would win every time because he was in, uh, superior, All right? Better swimmer and everything. So every time he would win. But one day the younger brother won, the invalid, the inferior brother. And he actually swam out so far that, and just never turned back that the valid brother, the older brother, started to drown and had to be rescued by the younger brother. So they make it back and the valid brother, the older brother, asks how he swam so far. He's never been able to swim that far. How did he swim so far this time? And the younger brother responded, I never saved anything for the swim back. I never saved anything for the swim back. Meaning he was prepared to give everything to win. Our veterans know what this feels like. But I share this because there's someone listening now. It might be you. Who's in a situation where you don't know what to do. Are you going to go all in? Or just a little bit in? Or not in at all, right? You just don't know what to do. Now, I don't know the details. So I can't complete give advice here. You know, obviously be wise, be prudent, get advice. But if your gut is telling you to go all in, if that's what your gut's telling you, do it. Do it like the men of Point du Hoc. Do it like Sam Houston. Do it like Cortez. Do it like Caesar. Do it like Sun Tzu. Go all in. Be desperate. Put your back against the wall. Put your own back against the wall. And you will find a new gear that you never knew you had. Don't save anything for the swim back. one 900 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. We actually got a few minutes here. I want to talk about Comey uh, coming up in the next segment. Uh, but let's wrap up because I mentioned terrorism earlier. We kicked off the show talking about that and the West, the West's reaction to it or lack of reaction. Um, this is uh, Theodore Dalrymple. He's a really fantastic thinker and writer. That's his pen name. His name's Anthony Daniels. He was a doctor in an inner city hospital in prison in uh, England for decades. So he's lived a really fascinating life. So wrote a great editorial in the Wall Street Journal. I just want to quote this one paragraph. He says, from all of this, he's talking about all the ways that our culture appeases Muslims. Uh, for, he gave an example of in Birmingham, they have women-only tables in the library. Women-only tables. All right, this is for Muslim women. Okay. From all this, terrorists surely draw a great deal of comfort. It gives them, the terrorists, the impression of living in a weak society that will be easy to destroy. They perceive ours as a candle and teddy bear society. We kill, you light candles. 
The other day I passed a teddy bear shop. That is to say a shop that sold nothing but teddy bears. I'm sure the terrorism is good for business, but the teddy bears are more reassuring for the terrorists than for those who buy them to place on the site of the latest outrage. The teddy bears are more reassuring for the terrorists than for those who buy them to place on the side of the latest outrage. I'll end with this just uh, as a final example of, of how everything has to be our fault. That's the lens that the left has. Everything has to be our fault. And you've heard this before the last couple of decades that the Syrian civil war, the civil war going on in Syria is caused by climate change. So you driving to work, using work, driving car, whatever, like everything, flying in planes, you caused the Syrian civil war. Scientific American wrote an article two years ago and, and others have used the term climate refugees. So this nonsense has been going around and there's a man in Syria. He's the president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's a Syrian man. And he said, no, he said the situation in Syria, uh, he said that doesn't have to, do, it doesn't have to do with agriculture or with crops. It has to do with the regime that was torturing teenagers. He says, yes, there's a, there was a drought in Syria, but there's always droughts. Droughts don't necessarily lead to a civil war. He said in a civil war, families get their water cut off as the government tries to make them cry uncle. The use of food and water as a mechanism to control populations has augmented by thousands of times the, the agricultural reality of drought. Are you with this? So yes, there is a drought. There's always droughts. Droughts have always happened. Droughts will always happen that doesn't necessarily mean that a murderous genocidal regime will come to power, but there already was a murderous genocidal regime. And not only were they killing people, but they were cutting off food and water from people for not caving to the demands of the dictator. And then I may like, but, but no, no, that's our all. That's all our fault. Amazing how the West gets blamed even for that. But when you have certain people like progressives and academics who, who truly look at the world through that lens, they will go through the best of mental gymnastics to make it your fault. Don't let them. Don't buy it. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Hope you have a good weekend. So uh, I want to chat about Russia's meddling in the election, and we're going to talk about Comey here because this this is the issue, right? This is the big thing: the whole Russian meddling in the election, which, by the way, is an entirely made up construction by Hillary Clinton's campaign, John Podesta and Robbie Mook within 24 hours after she lost. This is documented on page 374, I think of the book shattered, right? So they, they got all together in Brooklyn spun an excuse for why she lost. And they came up with Russia meddled in our election. 
Now, Comey the other day said that there is no doubt that Russia meddled in our election. He didn't give any specifics, so we don't know how Russia meddled. We don't know how. He, said, he really said, he said, there's no doubt that they meddled. We don't know how. So I would like to know how. And the only way we can, I think, really come to the conclusion of how Russia meddled is a process of elimination. So, I mean, let's, let's just start knocking off some things that Russia did not do to affect the election. I, I know Russia did not destroy the Rust Belt over the last 50 years. Russia did not make Hillary not campaign in Wisconsin in the last couple of weeks of the campaign. Russia did not make Hillary's campaign have zero mission and purpose behind it. Russia did not force Hillary to have a private email server in her home. Russia did not suppress the black vote that turned out for Obama, but did not turn out for her. Russia did not prevent Hillary from courting the Catholic vote, which Bill Clinton told her she needed to do. I'm pretty sure Russia had nothing to do with those things that actually affected the election. And then on the flip side, I'm sure Russia for the last, I don't know, 40 years has not propped up Donald Trump and given him almost 100% name recognition in the country. Russia did not help Donald Trump be more charismatic and connect with people in a way that no politician ever has. Russia did not write the emails between people in the Democratic Party that were ultimately leaked. We could go on, right? But if you look at all the reasons why Trump won the election and all the reasons why Hillary lost the election, and you does you yourself answer those questions like why did if you did, like why did I vote for Trump? Or at least why did I not vote for Hillary? Any reason you come up with, Russia had nothing to do with it. And of course, there's zero evidence that they, you know, changed the, the vote count in any state, which is an absurd proposition. So we keep hearing that Russia meddled in the election. No specifics. Second, there is a massive, monumental difference between meddling and collusion. Russia meddling in our election is an independent move by the government of Russia. And actually, we don't even know their motives. It's interesting that people assume that they meddled to help Trump. It's just as likely that Russia obviously thought Hillary was going to win and just maybe wanted to weaken her as president when she won. But that's meddling. That is light years away from collusion. As in Trump working with the Russians as a clandestine agent to suppress votes or steal votes or make Hillary pass out at the 9-11 memorial ceremony. Whatever, right? But that is a massive jump to take from, oh yeah, uh, Russia meddled in the election to they colluded with President Trump. Totally different world. Here's the third point I want to make, and this is the main one. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. First of all, I hope I never have to say the name Jim Comey ever again. I never want to talk about him. I never want to talk about Russia. And the good thing about it all is it's all behind us. I know he's a $10 million book deal. Um, but this is behind us. Uh, Russia collusion is behind us. All that nonsense. Even Chris Matthews came out and said, oh, well, that our, our whole narrative got blown to pieces. Those are his words. Um, 
and or basically so he talked i think he said the word narrative our narrative has been destroyed i think something like that and then uh, alan dershowitz said of course there's not obstruction of justice here so that's behind us so all of this stuff is behind us that's good but i i want to get i want the whole country to get off their high horse with this oh, oh i can't believe a foreign country meddled in our elections this was a hostile act and president trump is responsible like stop with the fake outrage we interfere with elections around the world all the time there's a political scientist at carnegie mellon and he has documented that since 1946 not including military coups and regime changes which would be like the shah of iran not including that and not including election monitoring, which is standard operating procedure. We have countries come monitor our elections. That's, that's, not, that's, a, that's a nothing. So either extreme, right? The one extreme, which is like zero, like monitoring elections, that doesn't count. And then like the crazy extreme of military coups and regime changes, not even including those. We have meddled in the election of other countries 81 times. 81 times. Eight, one, 81 times. Right after World War II, Italy, we gave a ton of money to the Christian Democrat candidate to beat the communists. 1990, Nicaragua's elections. The CIA leaked info to hurt the Marxist candidate. We actually gave information to a German newspaper, which then the opposition in Nicaragua, Nicaragua used against the Marxist. We helped with funding and training for the Czech president, Václav Havel, to beat the communists there. Got involved in Haiti, 1986. 1996, how about this one? This is, this is Russia, okay? So Boris Yeltsin, uh, Clinton liked Boris Yeltsin, right? We, through the IMF, gave 10, a $10.2 billion loan to Russia right before the election, their election. And Yeltsin used that money to build new infrastructure and pay pensions and all the rest and gain popular support before the upcoming election. $10 billion? Are you... That's That's some... Um, Meddling right there. Yugoslavia, 2000. Slobodan Milosevic. We didn't want him to stay in power because of what he was doing with the Balkans and stuff like that. So we supported the opposition candidate. Gave money, training, campaign aides, all the rest. And that's why they won. So, of course, Russia meddled in our election. I'd be shocked if they didn't. They've meddled. We know for a fact they, that Russia's meddled in our election in 1950, 58, 84, and, and this one. But I, I'd be shocked if, if they didn't meddle in every other one. But so do we. All the time. Everywhere around the world. So it's not, did they? It's to what extent did it change anything? And really, the real question is, why didn't President Obama or the infrastructure that was in place, do anything to stop it. No one, no one in the FBI or CIA or whoever, no one was like, wait, what? A country? Why need to interfere in our... Oh, this is the first time that's ever happened. No, what do you, no one thinks that. But we're supposed to believe that. And then take the giant... So we take the, oh my gosh, this is so unique. This has never happened before. So you go from that to... Oh, collusion. Mm-hmm. Trump collusion back channels, you know. Yeah. Banks. 
Yeah, Ru- Russian banks. Mm-hmm. You know. Connect the dots. Just connect them. What dots? <laughs> All of them. What, what, how do I connect them? <laughs> you just, you do. You connect them and then it's, it's going to be more clear. Trump colluded with the KGB and Vladimir Putin to take down Hillary and become president. So that, I don't need, you know, you know the, I mean, yeah, it's obvious. Like, what are you talking about? Enough with it. I got to take a break here. I want to come back though. I'll wrap this up with a, with a clip of Hillary Clinton saying that we should have colluded, or excuse me, we should have meddled in a different country's elections. Hillary Clinton. So the same Hillary Clinton, and Reed Shattered, same Hillary Clinton who's blaming foreign meddling in this election with zero evidence that it made any impact whatsoever. I don't know a single person, a single person who either voted for Trump or did not vote for Hillary because of anything in WikiLeaks. So let's say Russia was involved in that, right? That did not change a single vote. Not a single one. So there's no way to prove the extent that this meddling had. I'm going to go with zero. But I got that a clip from the same person, Hillary Clinton, back in 2006, saying we should have meddled in a different country. I'll play that next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, so just don't don't think that any of this, any of this is new. Like, oh my gosh, Russia meddled in our elections. Oh, wow. What a hostile act. And if it's so hostile, again, where was President Obama and all the infrastructure in place to stop it from happening? Or what? Anyway, uh, nothing new about it. We've always interfered in other countries' elections. Other countries have always interfered in ours. Nothing new. So first, I want to focus on us interfering with other countries. And I can, I mean, I just rattled off a bunch right there, but I can think of no better example than this clip from Hillary Clinton. So this is from January 25th, 2006. At this point, she was a senator. She was senator of New York. And she's talking in Brooklyn in, uh, uh, with a group of Jewish reporters. So she's talking to the, some Jewish press. Very small group of people. And one of the editors of a newspaper was uh, recording it with a tape recorder. And they were talking, she was talking about an election that took place in the Palestinian Legislative Council. So this is the legislature of the Palestinian National Authority. And in it, Hamas, the terrorist group Hamas, won 74 seats, which is not good. And the U.S.-backed group won only 45 seats. So Hamas won a lot, the U.S.-backed group not so good. So Hillary said, let, let's, the audio is terrible, but I want, I want to play it here just so you know I'm not making this up. And she actually said this. Here it is. I would not think we should have pushed for an election in the Palestinian territories. I think that was a big mistake. And if we were going to push 
elections, then we should have made sure that we did something to determine who was going to win. Got it. Let me transcribe. She said, I do not think we should have pushed for an election in the Palestinian territories. I think that was a big mistake. Okay. And if we were going to push for an election, then we should have made sure that we did something to determine who was going to win. Sounds like meddling to me. The editor of the newspaper who was there said he was taken aback that, quote, anyone could support the idea offered by a national political leader, no less, that the U.S. should be in the business of fixing, fixing foreign elections. Okay, so that person, that gentleman, was not aware that we have interfered, we have meddled in foreign countries' elections 81 times since 1946, not including regime changes and military coups. He thought, oh, no, that never happens. It happens all the time. So here's Hillary Clinton talking about when we should have. She wanted to make it 82 times. And now here she is talking about, complaining about foreign meddling in her election. This is a quote from Noam Chomsky. This is just in January. He said, must, much of the world must be astonished if they're not collapsing in laughter while watching the performances in high places and in the media concerning Russian efforts to influence the American election. A familiar U.S. government specialty as far back as we choose to trace the practice. But there is one major difference. By U.S. standards, the Russian efforts are so meager as to barely elicit notice. Right? So like the rest of the world's cracking up. You have all these, like I said, politicians and um, people in the media, like, oh, they're aghast. Oh, foreign meddling. Oh, my God. He's like, the rest of the world's cracking up at you on your high horse at the, at the thought that Russia meddled in our election when we do it all the time. But the only difference is Russia to make a difference at all. Barely enough to elicit notice. We actually affect outcomes. There was um, 1958. I mean, I just mentioned like five or six earlier, but here's another one. 1958, Japan. We gave one candidate intelligence on the socialist candidate. And the CIA got that information from a paid informant within the socialist party. Handed it over so that the socialist guy would lose. Okay, all the time. Uh, second point here. So, so that's us getting involved in foreign countries. How about foreign countries getting involved with us? That's happened since the very beginning. So the French interfered with the election of John Adams. Now you can talk about how much of a difference something like this makes, but the French ambassador said that if we continued our foreign policy, meaning if we reelected John Adams, then France would become an enemy to America. And that's noteworthy. And John Adams called this a quote, danger to our liberties. What a danger to our liberties. Oh, the influence of a foreign country in our election. In 1940, the Nazis leaked a Polish government document hoping to damage FDR. And the German embassy in Washington, D.C. gave a U.S. paper money to publish the document. 1984 against Reagan, the Soviets leaked or spread a slogan, Reagan means war across the country. Right, that was that was a Soviet uh, devised plan. Right, so heavens, we've been a few. Are you with me? I don't need to beat this horse anymore, do we? 
Now, here's the rub of this all. This professor who documented the 81 times that we've meddled, he says this changes the vote by about 3%. The three percentage points. Uh, but he says a bunch of variables here. So you have overt meddling and covert meddling. So secret meddling. And he says the covert meddling is much less effective than the outright meddling. So he says any foreign meddling in this election was covert, which means eh, it didn't really make that big of a difference. Then he says that meddling in American elections is way less effective than us meddling in, in foreign elections. So you get that too. And then we also have the Electoral College. So meddling, we've talked about the, the, the Electoral College during the election. And one of the benefits of it is, let's say someone adds 10 million votes to a precinct in Montana that no one pays attention to. That doesn't affect the Electoral College outcome any more than the electoral votes that Montana gets. So if you wanted to hack the election, in America, you can't just add a bunch of votes in one place. You have to add a bunch of votes in many states in order to make any real difference. And that is a much steeper hill to climb. So even if meddling changed the vote one percentage point, that would be nationwide, not necessarily one percentage point in Wisconsin or one percentage point in Pennsylvania or Florida. This is one reason why we have the Electoral College, because the effect of meddling is uh, dispersed. But anyway, the point is, you have to ask yourself if a voter in Wisconsin was influenced by the Russians. No. Not at all. one 93 I'm just, I'm so, so glad this is over. The whole Comey thing, the whole Russia thing, the whole meddling thing. We don't have time today because it's only a three-hour show to go over all the, the months of headlines from New York Times, everyone talking about not only Russian collusion, but Trump being under investigation, which Comey came out and said it wasn't true. All of it lies. Zero credibility left. Actually, I do want to share a story about this next. I want to share a story coming up. The most blatant example that I've ever seen. I will keep this one in my back pocket unless there's another example that comes up that's better than this. The most blatant example of, I don't even want to call it a biased media. It's even deeper than that. And it comes out of the Comey hearing. Actually, it comes during the Comey hearing. We'll share that coming up. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Plays Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network hey karen thanks for the kind words on twitter i appreciate it um i want to share this video here i think they're almost entirely right here so i think it's worth playing it's from vox which is a progressive group but it's okay uh so last week i think last week maybe two ago we talked about how the news on tv is news entertainment it's the same way that wrestling is sports entertainment. It's not, it's not a sport in the traditional sense. Remember prior to 1938, newspapers published wrestling results as if they were real. Like 
like like baseball scores. And then for a couple of decades after that, there was this whole guise to get people to think that it's real. And people were like, oh, you know, it's fake, right? No, it's not. Finally, Vince McMahon said, all right, enough. Uh, we're not going to pretend it. We're not going to pretend it's real anymore. We're going to call it sports entertainment. And we're going to crank up the soap opera parts of it, right? The characters, the storyline, stuff like that. So news is the exact same way. It used to be news. Now it's news entertainment. And we should watch news entertainment with the same attitude and posture and perspective that we watch professional wrestling. And probably you should watch each both as often, right? Like however much you watch professional wrestling is how much you should watch news entertainment, to be honest. But we should, whatever, however much you watch it, you should watch it with the posture of this is not real. It's fine. It might be enjoyable. It might be entertaining. That's okay. Just like it's okay to watch wrestling. I mean, you know, basketball finals are going on now. That's sport. That's good. Uh, wrestling, it's fine. It's okay. Like, no, no, no worries. Same thing with news entertainment. No, no judgment. If you enjoy it, I don't. But if you do, that's fine. Just know it's not real. So I want to play uh, some clips of this video here. 1523. If you want to understand how CNN covers Trump, you have to understand Jeff Zucker, the network's president since 2013. Zucker came to the network from NBC, where he oversaw shows like Fear Factor and yes, The Apprentice. His background is entertainment television. And to Zucker, politics is essentially a big game. He told New York Times Magazine, the idea that politics is sport is undeniable and we understood and approach it that way. Can't believe that's a real quote. Oh boy, you can see that approach in a lot of how CNN covers politics. Flashy countdown clocks, dramatic graphics, head to head. pre and post debate panels. It's essentially become the ESPN of politics. You a big ESPN fan? You know what? But the clearest parallel between CNN and typical sports coverage is the screaming matches. Turn on CNN and you'll almost certainly see an argument between hosts, pundits, and commentators. Turn on CNN's primetime shows and you'll see that same argument between a much bigger panel of people. Speak about These shows are clear relatives of ESPN shows like First Take, which pit commentators against each other to argue about whatever news story was happening that day. This is the problem. Hold on. This is the problem. You can actually see some pretty clear parallels in the formats and studio sets of these shows. This type of news coverage centered around pundits arguing with each other makes for cheap, easy TV. It's loud, it's dramatic, and it requires no original reporting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, I like that last line. It's cheap, easy TV. That's all it is. It's junk food. It's junk food. That's it. And that's fine. It's good to have junk food every once in a while, but it's not a nutritious diet. Check out this quote. This is from Zucker. This is last month, a New York Times article. As Zucker sees it, he's the head of CNN, his pro-Trump panelists are not just spokespeople for a worldview. They are, quote, this is Zucker, characters in a drama. Characters in a drama. Not any different than The Rock. And I know I need more, I need updated wrestling references. Mine are all circa uh, 1999. But, uh, the rock triple H. I mean, these are just characters in a drama. That's all. And so is everyone you see on CNN. Everybody says, Oh, I can't believe you have Jeffrey Lord or Kaylee McKenney McKinney or something. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Kaylee McKinney. But you know what? Zucker told me with some satisfaction, they know who Jeffrey Lord and Kaylee McKinney are. So check out how this works every day. And I've been a part of this. 
what they do and in this in this video they highlight jeffrey lord but this happens all the time so jeffrey lord trump supporter he goes on tv in the afternoon and he says an outlandish thing the example that they said was or they used was um Jeffrey Lord said that that Trump is the Martin Luther King Jr. of healthcare. Like, I don't even know what that means. I've, I've, I've no idea what that could possibly mean, but it creates outrage. So what they do is then they then invite him back on two different primetime shows that same night with a much larger panel to debate it. And it takes, you know, two segments each show that's you know half, half an hour each show it's an hour and what is the number one priority of tv news what's the number one priority we've said it a million times fill time so cnn hired this guy to be i don't even want to call it provocative because there's nothing thought-provoking about that but they hire this guy to say outlandish things and then they just recycle it. like they make their own outrage so they he says something crazy and then they recycle it over and over and debate it, but they manufacture their own drama on a slow news day. They made their own storyline. If there wasn't a storyline out there that was good enough or they couldn't find. So, so let's say, I don't know exactly when he said this, but probably during the whole, uh, you know, Obamacare light proposal, instead of having someone on and give an actual thoughtful analysis, they went the junk food route. They went the cheap and easy way, which is to say something stupid like Trump's the Martin Luther King Jr. of healthcare. Like, what could that even, like, but that filled an hour of time. It's cheap, it's easy, it's perfect. It's a big soap opera. And this is why we feel so divided. Because this is the news we digest. But it's not news. It's not real. Just the other day, a couple days ago, ISIS killed 12 people in Iran. Did you know that? So I think it was around the Manchester terrorist attack. There were five terrorist attacks that week. Within, within seven days, there were five terrorist attacks, including one in Egypt where ISIS killed 25 Christians. I think killed 25 and injured 24 more or flipped those numbers. Either way, 25 Christians killed on their way to church. Did you know that? No. Because that's news. There's no time for news in news entertainment. ISIS killed 12 people in Iran. Why? That seems odd. Why would ISIS kill people in Iran, right? ISIS is bad. Iran's bad. What's going on there? What's, what's the deal with that? They're, they're not going to cover that on CNN. Because they don't hire smart people. They hire actors. So they're not going to put anyone on to analyze it. Because it doesn't fit any pre-constructed storyline. It doesn't fit in the soap opera. And what a better example of the soap opera than the whole Jim Comey nonsense these last couple of days. So what, he testified on Thursday, right? So all day Wednesday was the pregame show, just like the Super Bowl, right? All day, the morning of, it's the big Super Bowl uh, pregame show for 10 hours. And then and they're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I always think like, well, I don't know. Just wait till this afternoon. We'll find out. Watch the game. So you have the whole pregame show. Then you have the whole show. Every single station broke in. I'll tell you something. My local station, CBS, so I work at a local uh, radio station, but the TV station affiliated with us, they broke in, and some of the people on top were saying, oh, this is going to be bigger than Watergate. (laughs) What are you talking about? So they break in, and then afterwards, it was a big letdown for the media, but still, we got to fill the void. So they come up with something to talk about and analyze, and that's, that's, it's not news. It's news entertainment. So, 
What do we do about it? Just be a good consumer of it. That's it. And watch it if you want. It's fine. But just know what it is. Identify what's real and what's made up drama, which is meant, intentionally meant to give you nothing but a sugar high. Eat real food. Not TV dinners. Now, because of all this controversy the other day, no one paid much attention to what Ben Carson said. It got him in a little bit of trouble, but he backed it up. And I'm happy he did. We'll share that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater slater crusaders ben carson hasn't been in the press lately why not let's chat about him for a second actually before we do that uh there's 13 counties in alabama that had welfare programs and recently they it's a long backstory but they restarted the work requirement in order to receive food stamps and a couple months later the number of people on food stamps dropped 85 percent so once they reinstated the work requirement, 85% drop in the number of people on food stamps. That's an amazing drop. And it's, just, it's fascinating to me how much a government program can rob someone of their motivation and really, I was going to say enable them, but really enfeeble them instead of empower I want to talk about Ben Carson, what he said the other day. He said, part of poverty is someone's state of mind. And he said, now that he's head of housing and urban development, he wants to, quote, find ways to make sure that people understand that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. The person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. Now, anti-poverty advocates, anti-poverty advocates are, are critical of what Ben Carson said because from their point of view, their perspective, under no circumstances can poverty be someone's fault. Never can poverty be, be someone's fault or a result of someone's own bad choices. Poverty has to be because of things and forces and people outside of your control. Even if someone deliberately intentionally makes bad choices knowing their bad choices knowing there will be consequences because of it even then it's not their fault it's some cultural aspect or something that some some oppression that caused them to do that right the the most basic language of um you know someone's less fortunate implies that it's all luck right so if you're more fortunate it's luck. you're lucky if you're less fortunate you don't have luck right so even that it takes out human agency from someone's condition because it has to fit in a progressive mindset it has to fit the oppressor oppressed matrix so you have ben carson who grew up in abject poverty his dad was a bigamist his mom couldn't read and he grew up to be one of the smartest and accomplished people of human history And I'm not exaggerating. He was the first person ever to perform brain surgery on a baby in the womb. 
I think that puts you on the list of most impressive people ever. But he grew out of poverty, rose out of poverty. He must be destroyed. He was questioned on this again at NPR. And he didn't back down. He said, what I said is that it is a factor mindset. He said, a part of poverty can be the state of mind, poor in spirit. And people tend to approach things differently based on the frame of mind. He said, a good example would be if you were a minor league baseball player and you were brought up to the majors and you look up to the mound and you say, oh man, Nolan Ryan. Oh no, he's a legend. He's got a hundred mile per hour fastball. I'll probably not even see the ball. Well, you're probably not going to hit the ball. But if you go up to the plate and say, Nolan Ryan, he's an old man. I'm going to knock the cover off the ball. Well, you're probably going to have a much better chance. He goes on and says, so one of the things I think government can do very well is to help create the right kinds of mindset, frame of mind, by providing ladders of opportunity so people can really see what's going on around them. A lot of times, if you go to a disadvantaged neighborhood, you ask the kids, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you get about five different answers. Football player, basketball player. He says, but there's a thousand. You need to show people the other 995 and how to get there. And those are the kind of things that create the can-do attitude that is so important. And, And this is the key line, that for such a long time was a part of the American mindset. And there are those now who want people to think that somebody else is in control of you and that you are a victim. We want to find ways to make sure that people understand that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. Beautiful, perfect, and 100% true. But again, to a progressive mind, you can't. They can't allow that to be true. It can't be based off personal choices. It can't be based off of off of anything I did or did not do. It has to be because of some oppressor. There's some someone, something that did this to me. Because there's no personal responsibility. He goes on and he says, he says, I know there was a recent article that says, the state of mind is caused by poverty. I totally disagree with that, right? So, so the progressives will say poverty first, state of mind second. Ben Carson says, no, no, no. Your state of mind is what can cause your poverty. He says, I think you can have a lot of people who are in poverty who are not adversely affected by that at all, who have a winning attitude and who will do whatever they need to do to be successful. And he goes on, right? So, It is so important, so important that we don't let this, this, this mindset, this ideology spread in America, that you are a victim to anything. And you would think that people would listen to a man like Ben Carson who came from the lowest of the worst poverty possible, a bigamist dad, a mom who couldn't read, and grew up to be an incredible man. And that's maybe that's an anomaly, like how low and how high, he, like how, where he started and where he ended up. But anyone else can rise the ranks too, at least in this country. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. One more hour flying by here. So I want to talk about the terrorist attack in uh, London, most recent one. Uh, so every time an attack like this would happen, let's go back a couple of years. I would get angry at, at, at society. Right? I'd, I'd say, gosh, when will people wake up? And then there'd be another one. And I'd say, oh, surely people will wake up now. And then there'd be another one. And say, okay, well, like, th- this, this is it, right? People have to see what's in front of them now. I mean, how many of these attacks does there have to be? And then they'll say it's a lone wolf or it's a depressed person or an unemployed person. And they'll completely ignore all reality to try and dismiss it as no big deal. And then we have a coordinated attack, not a lone wolf, involving many different people at the same time, deliberate, running over people and then slitting their throats. They would have beheaded people if they had more time. And if their goal wasn't to kill as many people as possible. Screaming Allah and all the rest. And, and I hear this, and I see this, oh, okay. Surely now the people of London and the world will wake up to this. No, nope. So I had an epiphany the other day. I distinctly remember where I was when I had it. Where I was isn't important to the story. It's just that I was. It was. It was an epiphany. You know, when you have an epiphany, you tend to remember everything around it. So I've come to the conclusion that these attacks will have to be way worse before a majority of people wake up and start to care. I'm talking worse than 9-11. Worse than 9-11. So the reason I think we came together after 9-11 was because battle lines weren't yet drawn. Teams weren't yet decided. Um, trenches weren't dug. So when we were attacked, everyone just did the right thing because no one had any other place to go, right? Which is like, oh, well, let's all do the right thing. But if there was a 9-11 today, I think people would immediately go to their teams and, and just yell at each other just like we do now, right? Where you have people on the left who say, oh, need more gun control or mental health, whatever. And then people on the right will be like, Muslim terrorists, right? And, but nothing will happen. Nothing will change. Nothing will be different because battle lines are now drawn. And we will not react. If there's another 9-11, I don't think we will react the same way to this 9-11 as we did 9-11-2001. Are you with me with what I'm saying here? And I, I thought of this because, again, every terrorist attack, you know, 10 people die, 4 people die, 20 people die, 6 people die. And there's way more terrorist attacks around the world from ISIS that, than we know of. Right? Like I mentioned the other day, in Egypt, 25 Christians killed, uh, 12 the other day in Iran. I mean, there's terrorist attacks all the time that we don't even know about. And it's just one after the next, after the next. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe when 50 people die, people will care. No, I don't, I don't even think then. What if there's a terrorist attack where 100 people die? No. 
I don't think people will care then. What if there's a terrorist attack where 3,000 people die? Mm. Here's the, the two things that I think would make a difference. First, if there's massive destruction, not just people, and this is really sad that I'm saying this. I'm not saying this is right or good, but I'm saying this I think is right, is accurate, that people care less about seven humans being killed than they would if the London Bridge was destroyed into the River Thames. Why? Because if the bridge was destroyed, that would impact more people's lives directly. That's how selfish I think we are, is that seven human lives are taken, seven souls, and ah, we'll light some candles, but a couple days later, it's fine. But if the, the bridge gets destroyed, well, now I can't get to work. So that's more of an outrage. It's more of a disruption. That's number one. The second thing I think is if a celebrity gets killed. I think if a celebrity gets killed, then more people will care. Do you remember, do you know any of the names of the London terrorist attack? Most recent? And, but what if one of them was George Clooney? What if one of them was Madonna? Right, that's when I think people would, would pay more attention. Sad. But I think it's true. Now, Theresa May, Prime Minister, she said after the attack that there's there's a four-step program, four things they're going to do in response to this. First, tougher sentences for terror offenses. We don't have time to go into each of these. I just want to go into the fourth one. But tougher sentences, less tolerance of extremism. I love that. Not zero tolerance, just less. Just a little bit less. I mean, right now we have a ton of tolerance, but we're just going to have a little bit less. Like a ton of tolerance as in one of the terrorists, you know this, we don't need to rehash all this, but one of the terrorists was in a video, like a documentary that played on the BBC about Islamic extremists in London. And there, there he is with the ISIS flag in a park. So, so that's pretty tolerant, but we're just going to have a little bit less. Not zero tolerance, just a bit less. Uh, number three, holding online giants accountable. Okay, so not getting to the root of it, just going to go after Twitter. It's their fault, but this is the one I want to talk about. Number four, reinforce British values. We're going to reinforce British values. Hmm. I heard that and I thought, well, that's, that's good. That's good. But then I thought about who's saying it. It'd be good if Winston Churchill said it. It'd be good if Margaret Thatcher said it. Mayor of London... Slater, how do you know? You know, how do you how do you know what they're gonna say British values are that need to be reinforced? Well, I mean, listen, it's tough to define. If you had Barack Obama and Donald Trump each explain what American values are, I think unfortunately they'd they'd have very different answers. So who's who's defining this exactly? Now listen, I don't know what they'll do moving forward, but but I can tell you what they did immediately after the terrorist attack. This is the Scotland Yard assistant commissioner, so the police chief. In she, he's saying, in an, and if there's another terrorist, she, excuse me, she's saying, if there's another terrorist attack, Britons should quote run away as far as possible. People should flee rather than ducking down where they are, and then hide once they cannot flee further from the attack. So 
a a PR effort from the police department in the case of a terrorist attack, run, hide, tell. That's what they're saying. Run, hide, tell. He said, she said, it may seem blindingly obvious, but some people don't run. They'll duck down where they are and do all sorts of different things in a panic. So let's be really clear. Run as far away as possible. And when you can't run any further, hide. And then call the police because we've got the people, the resources, and the firearms to deal with it. We're not going to get into a Second Amendment conversation. Too obvious. I know what you just thought right there. But here's some British values. We're told that we're going to reinforce British values. Okay, what British values? Running. Running away. Running away as far as possible from a threat. And then hiding. And then calling the police because they're the only ones who can do anything. I can't do anything. Run, hide, tell. Now, I don't think those are actually British values. That's my point. Those are not British values. There's reports of of people fighting back. I'm sure you've read some of them. Bouncers throwing chairs and glasses at the terrorists to keep them from coming into their bars. There's a story of a cab driver who used his cab to run over one of the terrorists who was stabbing someone. Now, a sane culture would encourage people to become qualified and defend themselves in case of an attack like this, to learn to do what it takes to learn to fight back, not to run and hide and submit. Imagine a world where instead of run, hide and submit, right? Really it's run cower and submit. It's a world where police hold Krav Maga classes for anyone who wants to take a free Krav Maga where police teach people where it t- what it takes to fight back, both physically and emotionally. People can be prepared, right? This is the mindset that we as a country need to have. What if we had a country instead where officials said, listen, if you die attempting to stop terrorists, we're, we're going to take care of your families. Don't you worry about that. You're going to get a special funeral. You're going to be held up in our society and your family's going to be taken care of if you step up and kill terrorists in the middle of an attack. Wow. If we did that, then the message instead of uh, attack us and we'll run away real fast and hide real good, the message would be attack us if you dare. These are two totally different planets. Which world do you want to live in? Which society do you want to live in? The world of Todd Beamer? Todd Beamer on United 93, let's roll. The world of Alex Scarletos and Spencer Stone. These are the Americans who, what, maybe a year or so ago, a terrorist walks on a Paris train with an AK-47, and these two Americans run on him and jump on him. Unbelievable, that guy was going to kill every single person on the train. Thank the Lord that they didn't run, hide, and tell. They beat him up. Which world do you want to live in? That world? Or the world where the British values are run, hide, and tell? I don't think so. Unfortunately, that's who we're told we have to be. I'll end here. Battle of Thermopylae, 480 BC. You got the Spartans versus the Persians, right? You've seen the movie. You got the few Spartans defeat the many Persians. And after the battle, Xerxes, king, asked a Greek person if everyone from Sparta is like this. Or if everyone from everyone in Greece is like this. And the Greek guy says there's a town called Sparta, which contains within it about 8,000 full-grown men. 
they are one and all equal to those who have fought here. That is not the message, which terrified Xerxes, obviously. That is not the message that the leaders of England are sending to the terrorists. Not with run, hide, and tell. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Yes, yeah, so here's a 33-year-old doorman at a bar. His name's Ozzy. So he started to run away with everyone else, but he turned back. He said, I realized I had to do something. If I hadn't turned back, there would be so many people caught up in the panic, there would have been more people hurt. So me and another guy started launching bar stools, bottles, and glasses at them, the terrorist, to try and disrupt them. It was completely chaotic, like a war zone. So the terrorists are trying to go into this bar, but because these guys were chucking stuff at them and they don't want to fight, they turned and ran in a different direction right into police who shot and killed them. So this guy, because he did not run and hide, saved lives. So what the heck is wrong with authorities when they say, oh, run, run as far as you can. And when you can't st- just keep running, just keep running even more. And when you can't run any, just never stop running. And then hide and call us. Well, like, I don't get that. When we have so many examples here of the people who save lives by doing the the opposite. And everyone knows it's the right thing to do. Everyone knows it is. I'll wrap up this this London talk with this and then I want to get to some D-Day stories as Wednesday was the 73rd anniversary of D-Day. So this is Mark Stein's definition of the post-terrorist theater that we've talked about the last, unfortunately, couple weeks. He says, congratulations, it involves the post-terrorist theater, involves congratulations for the speed of the emergency services. The sober anchorman announcing that Theresa May will be chairing a meeting of COBRA. That's the, uh, it's like an emergency meeting. As though a bunch of bureaucrats with a butch-sounding acronym has any clue about how to stop the corpse count from mounting. The cynical strategy of British and American leaders is to get their citizens used to this. They uh, they want this to be a new normal. And this is why Obama, President Obama said repeatedly, repeatedly he said, that more people in America die from falling in bathtubs than are killed in terrorist attacks. He, he says this, he has said this multiple times, that more people die in fall, by, from falling in a bathtub than from a terrorist attack, which so far this year isn't even true. I mean, you get the point he's trying to make, right? <laughs> that, you know, this terrorism thing is not that big of a deal. But it's actually not even true. Like more people die from terrorist attacks than there's someone in, uh, Australia, some some pundit in Australia that said Americans 
have a, a greater chance of being killed by a falling refrigerator than by a terrorist. Same idea. Also not true. The U.S. Product Safety Commission said that toppling electronics and appliances, so this includes TVs, refrigerators, everything, kill 29 people a year. And British Islamic terrorists killed 30 people in 12 days. So where 29 people a year die from falling all appliances, I'm assuming mostly TVs, British Islamic terrorists killed 30 people in 12 days. We're not going to take it any more literally here because that's not their actual point. The bigger point is that they're trying to brush this all off as if it's normal. Just like, you know, listen, people die from falling refrigerators, but it's more, you know, you're still going to have one. You're still going to have a refrigerator. It's worth having a refrigerator because you got to keep your food cold, right? Think of all the benefits that you and your family have from having a refrigerator. Might you die from a falling one? No, like almost zero. Same thing they're trying to do with refugees, right? Oh, listen, might you die from a, from a terrorist? No, I mean, listen, it's, it's not, there's way more benefit we get. That's the, it's way, just like your refrigerator, you get a lot of benefit out of that. You get a lot of benefit out of refugees and immigrants and migrants and Muslims and all that. So it's definitely, yes, yeah, there might be terrorist attack, but you're more likely to fall in a bathtub. That's what they're getting at. They're trying to say that, yeah, this is a risk. That's just part of living in modern culture. And to that, I say to heck with their statistics. One of the Australian girls who was killed, there's two Aussies who were killed. We'll just take one of them, 21 years old. 100% of her is dead. And if she was your only child, then terrorists killed 100% of your kids. So I see what you're trying to do with your self-righteous perspective, but it doesn't count when none of it is necessary. None of these deaths are necessary, and it certainly doesn't count when you are emboldening these attacks in the first place. Just don't forget that political correctness kills. It's important to realize that. I know you do. Don't be afraid to say it. Or we can just run, hide, and don't say anything. (laughs) which I guess is what we're supposed to do now. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, I want to come back, share a story uh, of D-Day. I want to share a story of, so it was 73 years ago Wednesday. Uh, oh, if you've ne- have you ever been to Normandy, you have to put it on your bucket list. Oh, it was one of the greatest things I've ever done. It was, it was great. You have to go. You have to experience it. You have to look at the beaches. Um. You, you have to go to Point Du Hog. It's great. I'll talk a little bit about it. But in particular, I want to sell the story of who FDR said won us the war. I mean, there were a lot of people involved in World War II, and FDR said, this guy won us the war? Who? How? Share his story next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. So I came across a story I've never heard before. I think it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about it. So, so Wednesday was the 73rd anniversary of D-Day. And we think of the men who stormed those beaches. And you, you've seen you know, Saving Private Ryan, a couple other movies. And they're in those boats, the landing crafts. And the back hatch opens up. And just instantly, instantly, bullets take down nearly every single person in the boat. Just like, just like just everyone's dead. It is impossible that D-Day worked. It's impossible. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to talk to a, a Green Beret, an Army Ranger who was one of the men of Point Du Hoc. So Point Du Hoc is the, uh, it's Point and then D-U-H-O-C, Point Du Hoc. It's one of the, it's the highest point between the beaches. And the Nazis fortified the top of that cliff so that they could just lob bombs on any invading army if they decided to come on the coast. So obviously the Americans had to take out this area before they could invade the beaches. If they didn't do that, I mean, they definitely, like, they just, every, all the Americans would be dead in two seconds. I mean, they just, just keep launching bombs from the cliff. So they had to take it out. So the Army Rangers did it. Everything went wrong. Every single thing went wrong. So the cliff's 100 feet tall. Think about that. That's a 10-story building. 10 stories. Think So your, your house is probably two stories, right? So that's 20 feet. This is 100 feet tall. They planned to arrive at night so that they had the element of surprise, but they were blown off course. So by the time they got there, the sun was up. So there was no more surprise. Also, it rained. So they had these grappling hooks that they were planning on shooting up to the top of the cliff and then climbing up the rope. Well, the ropes got wet, so they were heavy. And most of them didn't make it to the top of the cliff. So not only is it daytime, but they're climbing fewer ropes and the Nazis are just on top of the cliff, just mowing them down with machine guns. Somehow, they're 225 Americans. Somehow, they got up there. But when they got up there, everything was gone. Now, this is what's crazy. The mission wasn't to secure the cliff. The mission was to destroy the guns, destroy the artillery. And I remember I was talking to this guy and I said, well, you got up there and, and the Germans were gone. That's great. You win. And he said, no. The goal was to destroy their artillery. And there was no artillery, so we had to go find it. I said, what are you talking about? So they had to go into this thick brush. I'm telling you, the grass is over your head. They had to go into this thick brush where the Germans were hiding with all their artillery. And just, I mean, it's like, think of like a cornfield, but it's even, it's even thicker than a cornfield, right? Insane. Absolutely insane. I bring this up because I, when I talked to this guy a couple years back, I asked him if he's ever been back to Point Duoc. And he said he went back one time. He was with his wife. And he walked to the edge of the cliff. The very cliff that he 
and 225 army rangers climbed and he walked right right to the edge he put his toes over the edge of the cliff which is telling in and of itself because no one would walk that edge that close to the cliff it's unprotected no one would walk to the edge of it but he knew he would be protected again right he he wasn't scared to walk right up to the edge of it. And he looked down over the edge of this hundred foot tall cliff. And he said, there's no way we did that. I'll never forget that. He said, there's no way we did that. That's how impossible it was. He did it. Like he literally did it. It'd be one thing if I went there and and said, oh, there's no way someone could do that. He did it. And he concluded there's no way we did that. That's true for that story. And it's true for D-Day in general. There's no way it worked. But it did. Now, to my main story here. I've been thinking a lot recently about not just the men on the front lines. And, and not to take anything away from them, obviously but the people behind the scenes in war and the unsuspecting people that you uh, really would never hear about. And it could be like code crackers, for example, right? The people who crack these, the, the enemy code, stuff like that. Um, Andrew, and also scientists, right? Andrew Higgins is one of these men. Higgins growing up, uh, not a good student, uh, a tough, no nonsense guy. But the only place he found peace was around boats. He loved fixing boats. Started doing it when he was 12. Lived in Nebraska. He moved to the South in his early 20s. Uh, but he, he didn't work on boats when he moved to the South. He was in the, the timber industry. Now, he's working for this company. And the company had trouble moving timber in shallow water. And they couldn't figure out how to do it. And he wasn't doing anything with boats at the time, but he said, oh, I, I know about boats. And he decided to build a vessel that could move the wood down, down a shallow water, down shallow river, right? Not even a decade later, he owned a small shipyard in New Orleans and he was building these boats, these super shallow boats that were really popular with loggers and oil triggers. And they were designed so that the propeller doesn't hit the ground, right? He called it the Eureka boat. And it wasn't until a couple years later when the Marines came calling, they needed some boat that could be used to, a, to land on beaches. Why? Because the beaches weren't as guarded as heavily as the ports. So the deep water ports, the Nazis were all about them, right? Because that's, that's the place where invasions take place because there's deep water and they weren't really too worried about the beaches. Obviously they were protected. They just told about point to Hawk, but they weren't as protected as the deep water ports. So the Americans said, all right, if we're going to, if we're going to invade, we have to do it in the beaches, but they didn't have any boats that could do it. So they went to Higgins. One day Higgins had 50 employees. Just a couple weeks later, he was one of the world's largest boat manufacturers. Little perspective here. September, 1943, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, 92% of the boats in the Navy were made by Higgins. 
Now, obviously, you know, you have an aircraft carrier versus these one of these boats, which are really small, but each boat's a boat. 92% of them were made by Higgins. I'm sorry, maybe I wasn't, I should have mentioned this earlier. These are the boats that you see on Saving Private Ryan, right? The boats where they go up on the beach or as close to the beach as they can and then the back opens up and they run out onto the beach. One of FDR's advisors, it's called the Higgins boat now. One of the FDR advisors in a Newsweek article, 1942, he said, it is Higgins himself who takes your breath away. Higgins is an authentic master builder with the kind of willpower, brains, drive, and daring that characterized the American empire builders of an earlier generation. It is pretty easy to see, and this can be said about a lot of people and a lot of things, but it's easy to see that we would not have won the war without the Higgins boat. And that's not just me saying it. I mean, FDR said Higgins is the man who won us the war. I don't think we could have won the war because there's no way we would have gotten so close to the beaches. I mean, we couldn't even get on the beach as it was, right? And you've seen St. Private Ryan, when you jump in the water, you still got to get through the water to the beach, right? But imagine if we got a mile off the beach. What are you going to do? There would have been even more casualties. So there's a ton of lessons here, obviously, but the lesson that I get from the story of Higgins is that when you're going through life, no matter where you are or what you're doing, you never know what it's training and preparing you for. Higgins, yeah, yeah, when he was young, he was you know liked to work on boats. But when he was an adult, he was in the logging industry. That's very different from building boats for the military. But it was the lessons he learned in the logging industry that led him to be able to build boats that the military needed at that time. Does that make sense? If he just stayed in the boat building industry then he would have built boats that wouldn't have been helpful to the military. But because he spent time in the logging industry, he was able to learn different skill sets that helped him when the time was right during World War II. Amazing. So no matter where you are, you can learn from it and it will prepare you for something else. Who knows what else though? That's the fun part. one 888 The Higgins Boat. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze. Radio Network. Spread the word. This is... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. One last D Day thing, Slater. Because I appreciate you being here today. We'll uh, wrap up here with the last D Day story. Um, the just, just on the the theme of how impossible D Day was, and even the guys who were there looking back on it, being like, "Oh, this, that's impossible." What? And we were just talking again, just to bring the point home. If Higgins never worked in the logging industry, then he wouldn't have designed that boat and D-Day couldn't have taken place. But even all that together, there had to be a million other things that came together. And one of them was the massive deception campaign that took place to make D-Day possible that I never only learned about recently. There's a couple different names for it because there's a couple different aspects of it, but one of them is called um, 
Operation uh, Overlord. So they, the, the Americans, the Allies, had to put on this huge fake deception campaign in order to think, in order to make, make Hitler think that we were invading somewhere else. So they had about a dozen German spies who they flipped and turned into British double agents, and they would feed fake intelligence to the Germans. So a pair of these double agents told the Germans that the British Fourth Army was teaming up with the Soviets to invade Norway. So the, so the Germans are like, okay, all right, we'll keep an eye up on Norway. So then the Allies kicked up all this uh, this fake radio chatter about, you know, how tanks, the tanks aren't working in the sub-zero temperature and stuff like that, right? So the Germans are hearing this and like, okay, maybe they are doing it. So Hitler, just a couple weeks before D-Day, sent some divisions up to Norway. This is my favorite though. We built inflatable tanks. There's pictures, if you look this up, there's pictures of guys holding up a tank with one hand because it's just a balloon. And but from the sky, they looked real. So we had this army of just all these, this huge army of fake balloon tanks. And we even used these rollers to simulate the tracks behind the, the tanks to make the planes think that they were real. Unbelievable. We had an actor. He was an Australian actor who looked like the general, Bernard Montgomery. So he would go scout out certain areas in the north and the German spies would see him and they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, why else would he be here if, we were, if they weren't going to invade Norway? amazing then on d-day we had planes drop these um thin uh, strips of aluminum out of the back of their plane so that it showed up on the german radars as if there was a giant fleet approaching right it was just one plane with a bunch of uh aluminum we even dropped fake paratroopers in norway and we had them wired so that they simulated rifle fire and grenades when they hit the ground had like fireworks on them amazing the deception now even as d-day was going on there was a spanish businessman who was a spy for the germans but he was really again a double agent for the british he fed fake intel to the british as d-day was taking place that the invasion of normandy was just a red herring and that so he this guy fed the germans that D-Day was the deception and the real attack was still coming up north. Right? So he totally flipped it on him and he was so trusted by Hitler that Hitler delayed sending reinforcements to France, to Normandy for weeks while the Allies got their foothold in Europe that they needed. It was just the delay that they needed in order to not just get on the land but to get the situated. Isn't that deception unbelievable? All the things that had to come together? Again, impossible. Absolutely impossible. Like, if someone wrote it, there's no way it could happen. (laughs) I got about a minute here. I'll share one quick story. Frank Soboleski, one of the Band of Brothers, uh, he was one of the men who liberated a, a concentration camps as they made their way through Germany. And he says, I witnessed it with my own eyes, rows and rows of buildings, stacks of bodies, low moaning and crying, sobbing that made you want to plug your ears. Our officers rushed us out of there as soon as they could. 
They didn't want anyone giving the prisoners any of their rations because it might make them very sick to start eating our food uncontrolled. The graves registration and the medics were rushed in as we, the soldiers, were let out. Wow. That wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have been liberated if it weren't for D-Day. Make sure your kids know about it. They're not learning about it in history class. The only thing they learn about World War II history is the atomic bomb and Japanese internment. Let them know the full story, the full truth, the heroism, the miracle of D-Day. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. We'll see you next Saturday. Slater Crusaders, have a great weekend. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.